Turn to Revelation chapter 2. We've moved on to a new church this morning. We are looking at the church in Smyrna. And Smyrna is written about in verses uh, 8 through 11. This morning we're only going to cover 8 and 9. And then we'll talk about um, verse 10 next week and verse 11 the week after that. Interesting thing about Smyrna. Smyrna didn't get a failing grade. Uh, there are two churches among the seven that didn't get a failing grade at all. They, uh, they got an, I know your works, and I know how good you're doing, and they never got the, but I have this against you. The church in Smyrna and uh, the church in Philadelphia. The interesting thing about both of those churches is that they were under persecution at the time. They were being tested greatly to the point of death, we're going to find out this morning. It's amazing how persecution narrows our focus. How persecution brings out the, the greatness of our faith. And that's what we see in Smyrna and in Philadelphia. Now Smyrna is the second church that uh, is mentioned in the letter, but it's also the, uh, the second church on the road. Got a map here, I don't know how well you can, well that was too far. There we go. Uh, down here is Patmos, down the bottom left. That's where John was writing from, where he had his vision that he's writing. First place the letter went was to Ephesus. Makes the most sense, it's the closest to him. It's also the largest city in Asia Minor, like we talked about uh, last week, or a few weeks ago. The second place it went was to Smyrna. Now that's just kind of the way the road worked, and we're going to see over the next few weeks that the letter, as it went through the churches, going from Patmos to Ephesus to Smyrna, then it's going to go up here, and it won't be this big on the wall, but it's gonna, that's the track it took. It just it made geographic sense. Also made uh, other sense. It made sense as far as who he was sending it to. But let's, let's look at the verses first, and then we'll talk about it a little bit more. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life says, I know your tribulation and poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So, Smyrna, second church. Turns out Smyrna is also the, uh, the second largest city in Asia Minor at this time. It... it kind of rivaled Ephesus, and it was a kind of a, a, a contest between them to see who could be more important, who could be biggest. Uh, that's modern-day Izmir. Smyrna is right there. It's just called Izmir now. You can go, and you can see some of the stuff from when Smyrna existed. It's, Izmir is literally built on the rubble of Smyrna. They just put a new city on top of the old one. Um, they, uh, they vied for importance with Ephesus. It's the, 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 the design of the, this city, the ancient city. It's, it's a port, it's a harbor, and it goes up the side of the hill, the city does. And when you look at it, the way it's designed, the way the, uh, the whole city was master planned, and we have it described to us in ancient sources, the whole look of it, the way the buildings were built and everything up the side of this hill, it looked like a crown sitting up on this hill. That was the way they described it. Even the, the way they cut the road up the hill added to that look, added to that impression. Now that's going to be important here 
in a couple of weeks. Uh, it, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Just get that in your head. You see, Jesus, Jesus isn't stupid. I mean, in case you ever thought, well, he was just guessing. No, no. He knew exactly what he was doing. And when he phrased things certain ways, he was making a point. And we're going to see that here in just a second, but we'll also see it in a, in a few weeks. Uh, but anyway, the design was uh, up Mount Pegasus, and, and it looked like this crown. As a matter of fact, Smyrna had more temples to Caesar than in Ephesus. Smyrna was the center, the, 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 uh, the biggest area of emperor worship had more temples, it had all kinds of temples up the hill until you got to Mount, the top of it, Mount Pegasus, and you had a temple to Zeus. But the center of worship of Caesar was in Smyrna. That's going to be important too, here in just a second. Uh, something else about Smyrna, there was a fellow by the name of Polycarp. Uh, it's not a great name. You, you don't hear many kids named Polycarp nowadays. Um, but he was a great guy. He was a disciple of John, John who wrote Revelation, the Apostle John. Uh, also, incredible thing about Polycarp was uh, he was probably close to, if not, a hundred years old when he was martyred in 155 A.D. He was, he was killed for his faith in 155 A.D. He was the, uh, the bishop in charge of the churches in Smyrna, appointed by the apostles. He, he was a disciple of John, but we understand that the, the, some other of the apostles were involved in appointing him as the bishop of Smyrna. And this guy, and, and the reason this is important, and we talked about this a little bit Wednesday night, and I gave you the wrong name. I said he had a disciple, somebody that learned from him, and I said Wednesday night his name was Clement. I was wrong. It was Irenaeus. Irenaeus is one of the early church fathers. We study Irenaeus now, today. We don't study Polycarp as much, uh, and honestly, I don't know why. Maybe we don't have as many of his writings. Irenaeus, we've got some, some stuff on him. Uh, but he learned from Polycarp. My point is, you can trace, if you go back through church history, you can trace leadership all the way back to the original apostles. And this is one that we know for certain studied under John, and then taught, sent his message on through his own disciples. Lived a long time, was uh, uh, martyred in 155 AD. And the real interesting thing about Polycarp, and the real reason I bring it up, is that he is probably the angel that this letter was written to. Remember when we talked about the angel, we said it, it could be that they were guardian angels of the churches, but most likely it was to pastors of the churches, the leadership of the churches. Polycarp was very likely the pastor that the letter of Revelation was written to. Probably the only one that we know of, the only pastor that we know of to receive the Revelation, the, the letter from John's hand the only one we know. And that's impressive that we've got that kind of history. And aside here, we can go back and look at these things. That gives us strong, strong foundation for believing this book. Because we can trace it. We don't have manuscripts from a thousand years later of the Bible. We have some of the Gospel of John from 110 A.D. 
40 years after it was written. We have in our history people that we are fairly certain received the actual letter. We can go back and read their writings and at the very least read what they told their disciples. So we don't serve a God. We aren't a part of a faith that bases its, its belief system on rumor and innuendo and, and maybes. We serve a God who wrote it all down and kept it preserved for 2,000 years. We have an amazing faith. And we need to understand that. That's why church history is an important part of our understanding. So uh, Polycarp is, is martyred in 155 AD, about 60 years or so after the letter is received. What we're going to understand by the end of this is that Polycarp is the result, is the fulfillment of what Jesus tells the church in Smyrna is going to happen to him. We'll see here in a few minutes that Jesus said, you're going to be persecuted. And we'll see what that means exactly. And Polycarp was the result of that. Polycarp proved that verse to be true. So let's, let's look at the verses. Now we understand Smyrna. We understand the, the city, the, even the preacher he was writing to. Verse 8, Jesus identifies himself. He says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, to Polycarp there in Smyrna, write, the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life, says. So Jesus is describing himself. And first he says that he is the first and the last. The meaning is fairly clear here. Uh, Jesus is always around, has always been around rather, and he's always going to be around. Jesus was there before creation. Jesus has eternally existed just like God has eternally existed. Jesus will eternally exist just like God will eternally exist. Jesus has been here and he's going to be here. Now why is that important? Well, it's a, good, it's a good theological understanding to have. It's good, or actually a good Christological understanding to have. It's good to know these things about Jesus, to understand that he is eternally existent. But I think equally as important as just knowledge about Jesus is knowing that that's a constant presence for those who are persevering. It's a constant presence during the persecution. Jesus is about to give them some bad news. They get a good grade, but the news isn't good. But Jesus opens up with, I'm the first and the last. So whatever I tell you after this, whatever comes next, you don't have to worry about it. You serve, you worship, you believe and trust in the first and the last, the one who has always been here and the one who is always going to be here. I'm with you no matter what. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the earth, he told his disciples. He told us. So he is the first and the last, always there. Then he goes on and says, uh, the one who was dead and came to life. So he, he died and came to life again. Well, we know what he's talking about historically. He was on the cross. He died. Real death. He didn't faint. He didn't pass out. He was gone. And three days later, when he should have been stinking, he rose from the grave. 
We understand that. He is historically, he's saying historically, in time, I died and I came back to life. But he's saying more than that. See, we don't quite get it in the English language, but in the Greek, that word for died implies something that wasn't expected. And by expected, I don't mean Jesus didn't know it was going to happen. I mean that it wasn't something that should have happened to that person, to that life form. Death was not a natural result for Jesus. Death was not going to happen for Jesus, should not have happened for Jesus, had Jesus not laid his life down. So it wasn't expected. You know, we expect our grandparents to die. We expect people to die. We expect to plant vegetables in the spring and get what we need from them and the plant dies toward the end of the summer, unless it's okra and it lives forever apparently. Um, you can't kill the mess. Uh, Jesus did not have that expectation. There is no expectation that Jesus would die. Yet, the Greek says, he did die, and it wasn't a surprise. It, it, that, that phrase, that word in Greek carries a lot of meaning. It's an unexpected death that wasn't a surprise. And it wasn't a surprise. The Bible tells us that Jesus was crucified from the foundation of the world. That was the plan all along. God wasn't shocked. Jesus wasn't shocked. The disciples shouldn't have been shocked. He told them a bunch of times it was going to happen. Jesus knew his purpose on earth was to go to that cross. So it was a, a death that, that in the natural course would not have happened, but didn't surprise the one who died. He died... But he lived again, it says. And this meant a lot to the people in Smyrna. Not just to the Christians. Not just to uh, those who believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Smyrna, at one time, had been uh, almost, almost destroyed. That uh, They had just fallen into disrepair. Years and years of... Uh, I, I guess economic downturn and bad city government and, and, and bad decisions along the way. Does it sound like a town we know? Uh, just, you know, there, it just slowly, slowly deteriorated until finally one guy came along about 400 years, if I'm not mistaken, before this time and, and fixed it all. And he, he revitalized it. So Smyrna, the city, knew something about being dead and coming back to life. Not, not in the literal sense like Jesus, like, like human life, but, but they had been at death's door as a city. They had been at the brink of, of, of disaster at their end, and they came back to life. And now they're the second largest city in Asia Minor. A, a, a great port, a great harbor, uh, financially wealthy, doing great. See, Jesus paralleled, in his phrase, he paralleled the city's history. And he said, just like you, Smyrna, just like your city once was dead, but then was brought back to life, I'm the same way. I was dead and came back to life. Now, he's not, don't, don't, don't get 
too upset that, oh, Michael, you're, you're, you're demeaning the death of, of Christ. And no, that's, that's not what I'm doing. He was using a, a rhetorical device. It was kind of an allegory. It was uh, uh, just an example. It was something that would have gotten their attention. Yeah, if, if, if you, uh, you know, you're struggling with a particular statement in the Bible, and somebody comes along and says, but you know, it's kind of like this when this happened in your life. And you go, oh, that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, you know, Smyrna, you talk about, you talk about a city that was dead and came back. Let me tell you about me, who was really dead and came back. Let me tell you about the only resurrection that matters. You want to talk about a city, you're proud of your city. Let me tell you about the one who can give you life. Let me tell you how you are dead personally, but can come back to life. So Jesus is getting their attention. Remember, in any church, you're dealing with people who know Christ and who don't. Even in the church in Smyrna, there were people that were coming that didn't understand. But when they heard that letter and heard it read to them, Jesus, the one who was dead and came to life again, they're going, oh man, our town did that. And their ears perked up and they started listening. I'm the first and the last. I was here and I'll be here. I was dead, and I'm alive again. I have the power over life and death. Now the bad news. The bad news is an A+. Understand that this church got an A+, but their grade was in some tough stuff. They had to go through some incredible tests to get this good grade. The first thing Jesus says, he says, I know your tribulation, in verse 9. The Jews had put a, a curse called the Curse of Minim in A.D. 90. Uh, Christians at this point were officially kicked out of the synagogue. Up to this point, Christians were considered Jews. They were considered a part of the group. This is a big deal. Now, I'm not going to give it away just this second. We're going to wait a minute. But this was huge for them to be kicked out of the synagogue, for them to no longer be identified with the Jews. Because, see, there came an emperor by the name of Domitian, and he begins to punish anybody who doesn't worship the emperor. And when I say punish, I mean kill. That's the punishment for not worshiping the emperor. So anybody who doesn't worship him gets, well, gets fed to animals, usually. At one time, Christians were not required to participate. They were considered Jews. See, the Jews, when they were overtaken by the Romans, they were acknowledged, their religion, Judaism, was acknowledged as an ancient religion to be, uh, to be recognized and to be accepted by Rome. The Jews did not have to worship the emperor. Now, they may give a tax, as Jesus talked about. You know, do you pay taxes to, to Rome, to Caesar? Yes, you do. They would participate in those things, but they were not required to make sacrifices to the emperor. They were not required to worship the emperor or anything like that. So when Christians were considered Jews by Rome, even if they weren't really considered Jews by Jews, they were left alone. They weren't required to make these, to bow down, to, to worship the emperor. 
but with the curse of Menim, that no longer is the case. Now the Jews have kicked the Christians out. Now the Christians are this new religion, this new sect who's just refusing to worship the emperor, and Domitian begins some persecution of, uh, of, the, uh, of the Christians that will culminate eventually in Polycarp's death in 155 AD. They knew tribulation. They understood what that meant. We see it coming. And as a matter of fact, it was already there because they got the book. They got their letter about 95 AD. They had already been left out in the cold for five years and had been experiencing this, this tribulation. Jesus goes on to say, I know your poverty. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. Smyrna was a wealthy city. If you had a business, you were, you were, you were doing good. The problem in Smyrna is that they had business guilds, craft guilds that were based on relationships. And not just friendships, but based on the synagogue, based on the temple cult. It was based on where you met people. And in this day and age, at this time, you met people at the synagogue. You met people at the temple cult. You worked together with those people. As Christians, they lost a lot of those relationships. Imagine, I guess it would be similar to, uh, to, to unions, though not exactly. But imagine if, if here in town, you had to be a part of the, the city government. You had to, in some way, uh, worship the mayor, show some sort of homage to the mayor in order to have a business. Would we have any Christians in business? Well, yeah, unfortunately, we probably would have a few. But there would be a lot of people who would be out of business because they would say, no, absolutely not. And of course, this seems way out there to us because we don't live under that kind of government today. Yet, uh, we are allowed to have a business and worship as we please right now uh, and, and not have a problem. But for these people, it didn't work that way. If you weren't a part of the group, you didn't get the benefits of the group. They wouldn't be hired. They wouldn't be traded with. They wouldn't be sold business space. They wouldn't have a spot in the market. If they had a spot in the market, nobody would buy from them. All because they were Christians. All because they did not worship the emperor or they were no longer Jews. So they understood poverty. They understood what it was to worship God and lose everything because of it. And Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know the persecution you're suffering under Domitian. I know your poverty. I know that your, even your businesses, your daily life, your ability to get food. Because this word poverty isn't that they didn't have the best of things. It's that they didn't have anything. I know your poverty. And he goes on and says, yet you are rich. We're going to skip that for just a second. Jesus goes on and says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. I know the slander. Now slander also hurts businesses and family relationships. Uh, just think about if, if you, again, owned a business in Nixon, 
but everyone started spreading this awful rumor about you. I don't know, pick your rumor. Just really started ripping you up, slandering you. People, most people, would not go to your business. You know, if, if it got around that, that you were, I don't know, a Nazi. Let's pick that one. Everybody, oh, they're Nazis. They're Nazi supporters. They're, they're this. People aren't going to go to your business. So add, take the tribulation that Domitian is putting on them, the poverty that they suffer because their business relationships are gone, and then add to that that everybody's telling lies about them on top of it. Well, what kind of lies? What are we talking about? Um, we don't know exactly for Smyrna, but we do know for the Christians of this era some of the things that they were being accused of. They were being accused of cannibalism. When Jesus says, eat my body, drink my blood, people were hearing that and saying, taking it literally. Oh yes, that's, oh, they're, they're eating people when they get together. Well, we know that's not the case, but that was the slander that was going around. They had love feasts. First Corinthians talks about their love feasts, which was, you know, potluck where they fellowshiped. But they were being accused of having orgies, which honestly didn't bother the Romans. They were used to that and enjoyed it themselves, but the Jews sure didn't. They were accused of doing awful things at these love feasts after church. They were accused of atheism by the Romans because they denied the Greek gods. How can you be monotheistic? If you're monotheistic, you're an atheist. You don't believe in all the other gods, is what they would say. So not only were they not of their religion, but they were of a, an, an atheistic religion, they were told. Uh, they were called arsonists. When they would talk about the fire of the Spirit or the fire of judgment, they were accused of being arsonists. Remember that when Rome burned under Nero, and you've heard the, the, the story about him fiddling while Rome burned and whether he did or didn't, he did lay the blame on the Christians. So for the years following that, for them to be accused of being arsonists because they're always talking about fire, well, they must have set Rome on fire. You can hear the slander, the things that were being said. They were accused of being traitors because they wouldn't worship Caesar. They weren't good citizens because they wouldn't bow to the government. That was the slander. They uh, would be disowned by their families, Jewish families if they became Christian, pagan families if they became Christian, but then were accused of breaking up families causing strife. Of course, then they would turn to the scriptures where Jesus said, if you, don't, uh, if you don't turn from your father and mother, if you don't break those family ties, you can have nothing to do with me. If I'm not more important than your family, then I'm not important at all. Well, they would read that scripture and say, oh, you're all about destroying the family, they would say. So this slander is going on constantly. Jesus says, I know your tribulation, I know your, your persecution, I know your poverty, I know that you are suffering in, 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 in financial ways because of your faith in me. I know the slander, I know that people are talking about you and saying horrid, horrid things about you. And then we find out where this is coming from. Jesus says, I know the slander of those who say there are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That's some harsh language. Uh, let's just think if people started coming into Nixon and saying, you know what, that first Baptist church? That's no church of Jesus, that's church of Satan. 
we get riled up about that, I think. I would, have, I would take umbrage with, those, with that statement. But this is what Jesus is saying about the synagogue there. Well, why? Well, first of all, they had rejected Jesus as, as Messiah. So they had, in actuality, by their rejection of Jesus, sided with Satan. See, personally, you're on one side or the other. You know, George Lucas, when he made, uh, made the Star Wars movies, was making a philosophical statement. He was making a, 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 uh, a political statement, but he was also making a religious statement. At one point, um, who was it? Uh, Anakin Skywalker said, you're either with us or you're against us. Well, if you remember, George W. Bush said the same thing a few years before that movie came out, after, 2000, uh, after September 11th, 2001. You're either with us or against us. You're either with us against terrorism, or, or you're with those guys if you, if you don't support the fight against it. So George Lucas was making a political statement there. But he was also making a religious statement. Because the response from Obi-Wan Kenobi was only a Sith speaks in absolutes. Only the bad guy speaks in absolutes. Only the evil side speaks in absolutes. Well, what do we as Christians do? We speak in absolutes. We say Jesus is the only way, and there is no other way. We say there's right and there's wrong, and it's clearly delineated. We as Christians speak in absolutes. So in a sense, in Star Wars, and you know, I, I'm a Star Wars fan, so you know, it, it, it pains me to admit this, but in a sense, George Lucas was doing exactly what we wouldn't want to have done to us. He was calling Christians evil. We would say on Satan's side, because we deal in absolutes. Now how does that make you feel? Kind of ticks me off. Makes me not want to watch Star Wars when it comes on on FX all the time. I will, but it, it still kind of aggravates me. That's what Jesus says about the synagogue in Smyrna. You are a synagogue of Satan. And they would go, excuse me, but no, we worship the one God. I mean, go back over and over. Jesus, you know, this isn't new for Jesus. He tells the Pharisees in the Gospels, you, you know, you do the things that your father tells you to do. You know your father, Satan, he tells them. And that, that didn't please them. So this is nothing new. They sided with Satan because of their re rejection of Jesus Christ. People, if you, do, if you reject Jesus Christ, you have sided with Satan. Period. The end. Stop. Amen. And that's what Jesus is telling the synagogue in Smyrna. But he is also sided with Satan because they had, in a very real sense, uh, sided with Rome. There we go. Um, there we go. They had sided with Rome against the Christians. By kicking them out of the synagogue, Jews weren't stupid. They knew exactly what was going to happen. 
They knew that when they were no longer a part of the synagogue, that opened them up to persecution. They had sided with Rome. And this, again, in 95 AD is not new. The Sadducees that, that Jesus preached against regularly, they were Jewish, but they were very, very Rome, Romanized, Hellenized is the word we used. Use. They, they sided with the Roman government a lot. They weren't as strict as the Pharisees. So this isn't anything new, but the Jews in the synagogue had done that. They had sided with Rome. Very likely, they, were, uh, they had rejected them, definitely. They were likely informing Rome on them. Hey, I saw some more Christians. They're meeting down at, at Jack's house. They're meeting down at, 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 at Joe's house. They're meeting down at Eusebius' house. Uh, Polycarp is their pastor. You know, that's the kind of thing that they were doing. They had sided with Satan against the Christians. Now, unfortunately, in history, this passage has been used to, uh, as proof for attacks on Jews, to, to bolster anti-Semitism. I'm sure Hitler loved this. As a matter of fact, this sounds like something that I, I read that he said uh, in, in exterminating the Jews. He would use this passage. And trust me, he only used the Bible when it proved, his, when it proved worthy of his purpose. At no other point did he do it. But this is the kind of thing, this is some harsh, harsh language. This is what the people were suffering. Tribulation poverty, slander, and now they're being turned on by this, this group that is supposed to follow God. They'll say, yes, we believe the Old Testament. Yes, we are people called out to, to a greater purpose. That's what they would say. And yet they have sided with Satan in two different ways, by rejecting Jesus Christ and working with the Romans against the Christians. But now let's go back. Remember what Jesus said. I know your tribulation and your poverty... Yet you are rich. And you got to know, you got to think that people sitting there as Polycarp held that letter, that scroll, and read it to the congregation, and they're going, tribulation, yeah. Poverty, yeah. We're rich, what? Can you, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm looking in my pockets and I don't, I don't see rich. I see, I can't, I can't feed my kids. I haven't eaten in three days. I don't, I don't understand rich. Yet you are rich. Matthew 6, 19 through 20. Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. See, these people had suffered under tribulation, yet they persevered. These people suffer under poverty, yet they persevere. These people suffer the slander, yet they persevere. These people suffer the, uh, the, the, the rejection, the, uh, the torment of a synagogue of Satan, yet they persevere. Now, if they're persevering, what does that mean? Does that mean they're making it? They're doing okay, you know, oh, it's all right. You know, when somebody asks them, how are you, they say fine. Is that, is that persevering? I don't, Jesus, I don't believe Jesus commends them for 
stiff upper lip and, 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 and keeping their chin held high. Jesus commends perseverance when our faith overcomes the circumstances. So when Jesus says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, your slan the slander, but you're rich, he's not saying you're making it. He's saying you're doing it. You are living up to the faith that you were called to. How do we know that? Well, we just go back to the scriptures. How are they rich? Because they have treasures where moth and rust and thieves and tribulation and poverty and slander and synagogues of Satan cannot get to them. They have treasures that are untouchable by man. But that's not the only place. 2 Timothy 2, 20-21. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver bowls, but also those of wood and earthenware, some for special use, some for ordinary. So if anyone purifies himself from these things, he will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. If you purify yourself, you are the silver bowl, the gold bowl. These people were wealthy in their priceless utensils. They were used by God. They could have said, God, I don't, have, I don't have the will to do it anymore. I don't have the finances to do it, God. Just use me for some ordinary purpose. Make me an, a wooden bowl. But God said, no, you are rich. You are utensils of great wealth of great value because you persevere through these hard times. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. The foundation is Jesus. The foundation that we build on is Jesus. And if we are building worthless buildings on that foundation, they will be destroyed in time. But Jesus sees something else in these people. Through their tribulation, their poverty, and their slander, Jesus sees on the foundation of his very work on the cross, buildings of gold and silver and costly stones... He sees a people that is rich in good works and in faith and in perseverance. Not just a stiff upper lip and a chin up in the air, but a faith that says, regardless of what comes my way, regardless of what I do, I stand for Jesus. No tribulation, no poverty, no slander will ever break my spiritual will, because nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. That is what Jesus saw. That is perseverance. That is an A+. The life of a Christian who suffers yet does not bend spiritually. Tribulation the question is, do you hide your faith when it's not acceptable to family, to friends, to co-workers, to the government? Do you turn it down? You know, just, oh yeah, I'm, I'm still a Christian on the inside, but I want to show it. Is that you? 
do you cave to the pressure of tribulation? Do you trust God until the money's gone? Does poverty affect whether, how, how you live for Christ? I can't be too open a Christian at work because I might get fired. I can't, I can't give to God what he expects me to because I just don't make enough. Is your money, are your finances in the hands of God just like everything else? Story after story after story I've heard, and, and I've never done this, so I can't, I, I can't set myself up as an example here, of people who give literally their last penny. Let's start with the widow woman in the uh, Gospels. Give their last penny, knowing when I go home, I've got nothing left. But they give it to God, knowing He is greater than my poverty. I have lived given when I don't think I can give. I've never given everything away. But I have given when the previous month I didn't give and I didn't have enough money to make it through. The money didn't make it through all the bills. The next month I'm determined I'm going to give. And I had what I thought was less money and the same amount of bills, but I made it through. I'm not saying God's going to give you one for one right back. What I am saying is that you will never lack if you give God. So is your, are your finances more important than your relationship with God? Slander. Do you worry about what other people say? It may not affect you in your, in your, relationship, your, your working relationships. Maybe it's not tribulation. Maybe you never, it's never done to your face. Maybe it doesn't cause poverty as it did with the people in Smyrna. But maybe you just don't want people talking about you behind your back. That's, that's, that's where I fall. I like to be liked. I mean, that's just, just the way I am. You know, I don't, I don't like to be too upfront, too much in your face, one-on-one. -on -one. This is easy because it's a bunch of you and y'all can't talk back. Um, unless it's an amen here or there. Uh, I don't hear too many oh me's. Um, so this, this is easier. But in a one-on-one, -on -one, I don't like for people to go away and that jerk, he just think, you know, he know, meh, meh, meh. I don't like that to, be, to happen behind my back. The question is, am I going to not stand for the truth because I don't want to be slandered in somebody's house, at the water cooler, at the taco ranch? at the new donut shop that opens in just a little while. <laughs> am I more worried about that than I am for standing for what's right? Are you more worried about what people are going to say about you than you are for standing for what's right? We look at Smyrna and we see a church that through tribulation, through poverty, and through slander, said we are going to be a church that stands for Jesus Christ regardless of what anyone outside says. We are going to be a church that through all of these, our witness remains true, 
Our faith remains strong. And our holiness remains evident. We are not going to back down. We're still going to tell people about Jesus. Laugh at me, mock me, slander me, lose some business. I'm still going to tell people about Jesus. I'm still going to be faithful. I'm still going to know that Jesus will get me through. Regardless of what's going on. My faith will be strong. And some days that's hard. Some days you, you cannot... It hurts to drag yourself out of bed, much less worship. You don't know how you can get through another minute, much less another day. But somewhere, you've got to find that kernel, that, that small seed of faith that today doesn't move a mountain, it just moves you. And you know what? Some days I think that's harder. I'm going to keep that faith regardless of my circumstances. And I'm going to stay holy. When I'm slandered, I don't slander back. When I'm persecuted, I don't respond with hate. I don't respond with words. I don't respond with cussing. When I am impoverished, I still give. Knowing it's not mine anyway. And I serve a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that raises the lilies and dresses them, that feeds the sparrows and knows when they fall. So why do I think he's going to have trouble getting me food this week? Holiness remains evident. Ultimately, we need to understand Christ persevered for us. Do you think it was easy? He knew from the foundations of the earth where his life was going. He knew he was going to die. Do you think that was easy on him? Do you think it was just a, a walk through the park, whistling as he goes on his way to the cross? Yeah, I got my cross here. I'm going to die for you. Christ persevered. He bled sweat of blood for you. He carried that cross for you. He was whipped till the flesh was pulled from his back and his ribs shone in front. He wore the crown of thorns. He had the nails pierced through his wrists and he hung there. Would have been for days except for the, well, except for him giving up. Him saying, it's done. Him giving his life instead of somebody taking it. You think that was easy? Christ persevered so that you could have salvation. Why don't you think you can persevere for him? Maybe you've never made that step. Maybe you've never asked Jesus Christ into your heart. Maybe the, the, the Christian life isn't something you've ever had to live. You've never struggled with tribulation and poverty and slander because of your Christian walk, because you've never asked Jesus into your life. Today is the day to get that straight. Today is the day to, to ask Him, to accept that free gift, to be one of God's children, and to experience the salvation and the freedom from sin that we have in Jesus Christ. How do we do that? We admit that we're a sinner. I have broken God's law. We believe that Jesus Christ is who He said He is. 
And then we confess. We confess with our mouths, the Bible says, unto salvation. But we confess with our actions, just like Lisa did this morning. And we, be, we are baptized. Not that the baptism saves us. But the baptism is the, one of the first steps to say, I am a Christian and I don't care who knows it. A public display of our faith. That is salvation. If you haven't done that, today is your day. Maybe after hearing this, you need to recommit. You need to return. Because you have been more concerned about the tribulation or the poverty or the slander than you have your faith and your holiness and your witness. Don't let that happen another day. Let's pray. Father, God, we pray that you would move on our hearts this morning. Lord, as we, as we seek you, as we struggle in our own hearts with, with our, our lack, God, there is very likely someone here this morning who lacks you, who lacks salvation. God, and I pray for that person or those people that today that they will accept you as Savior and Lord. God, there may be somebody here today, and I'm certain there is more than one, who has let the fear of tribulation, poverty, or slander get in the way of their witness, their faith, and their holiness. Lord, I pray today there is a change, that today there is a commitment to take up our cross daily and follow you, regardless of the circumstances. There is nothing that this world can throw at us, God, that you can't handle. And I pray that we move forward with that realization this morning, starting right now. Lord, move in this place as we have a, a time of, of, of response, a time to decide, what am I going to do with this word from, the, from you, God, that I've heard this morning? Move in a mighty way among us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's your decision? Will you persevere for him? Will you be what he has called you to be? Maybe you need to accept Christ this morning. Come and talk to me. Let's talk about it for a few minutes. Let's spend some time after church and talk about it and, and make sure that, that you know what you're getting into, that you know how Jesus is working on your heart. Maybe you need to be baptized like Lisa. You've been saved, but you need to be baptized. Maybe you need to recommit your life to lead a life of witness and faith and holiness against these other things that may come your way. Maybe you need to join our church. Maybe God is moving in your heart to be involved in missions and ministry through our church that you have thought in the past you could never do. We have opportunities for you to serve. I'm going to be talking about one during the announcements. What is God asking you to do? Share it on your commitment, the communication card, the yellow card. Come up here and talk to me about it. The altar is open for you to pray. Let's stand and we sing as we have this time of response.